Welcome, welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast, the podcast where I sit down with the world's top creatives and speak to them about fashioning a life of their own design. That's right, I said fashioning because I didn't want to say creating twice. Big thank you to my guest last week, Monty Lux. Uh, She came on the show and uh, gave a very transparent uh, talk about what life has been like working in the adult entertainment industry for her. If you haven't listened to it, I would highly recommend checking it out. You can do so at comingupnext.com.au. You'll also find uh, the previous 146 episodes and links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. That's at comingupnext.com.au. Bryce Jacobs is my guest this week. Uh, Bryce is a film composer from Sydney who currently resides in Los Angeles. Bryce has got an incredible body of work to date, uh, having worked with people like Hans Zimmer for uh, Remote Control Productions, as well as uh, on films such as Rush and the 12 Monkeys TV series. He's worked across film, across TV. He's worked on video game scores. He's recorded uh, at Abbey Road, and he's even designed his own guitar. But you don't need me to tell you all about it because I'm about to ask him all about it. So let's get over to the interview, episode 148 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with Bryce Jacobs. You've been living in LA for about 10 years now. Yeah, 10 years in August. Wow. I got the job that brought me here, so yeah. That's pretty incredible. What was the process like for you to move over from uh, from Australia? Uh, pretty rough. Because <laughs> I came here, I'd been here a couple of times before, but in 2008, I came for three months just to see what, what I could muster up. And um, I'd talk to and, you know, meet up with anyone who would, meet up with me and um i after about a month landed an internship at remote control um i was ready to take any way in so that was that was the thing that i i found and then um believe it or not on the 89th day of a 90-day visa waiver five hours before getting on the plane i got the job with ramin Javadi. and uh, so basically it was a difference between leaving stuff in this country or taking it all home so i left some stuff here i went home and packed up life and wife over the period of about two months. It was very quick to pack up, you know, you know, your whole existence in a country, um, pack that all up, sell it off, figure it out, and then get back over here, working out the right visa at the same time. So it was all a bit of a trial by fire. Yeah, it sounds, sure. <laughs> sounds pretty hectic. And remote control, that's, uh, that's Hans Zimmer's company, isn't it? That's right. What was it like for you, I guess, to kind of uh, you, you know to to be working in a company with this with this master kind of you know within I guess almost three months of sort of, of being in the states. Well, I was there for five years, and I often tell people that I've done two degrees in music, and I, I liken this to a third degree because there is just 
so much stuff that you learn and a place like that, so much stuff you learn on the job and a place like that is really um, so rich in, uh, in content because it beyond, you know, the, the, the incredible um, musical creature answers, you know, you've got about 25 or 30 years or something of, of people that have come through there and they've all refined the process. So, um, which is very liberating when you can just get on with the creative side and working for Ramin initially as his tech, I, uh, you know, I had very patchy knowledge of, uh, computers and also engineering and that kind of stuff. I had to tighten up very quickly. And, um, by the time I became his additional writer and then went on to be independent, it was quite incredible because all of a sudden all these ideas that I've had for years can really do anything or communicate them to anyone properly. I could do myself. So it was quite a liberating experience. You know, I, I really think, and you know, not just that side of things, it's actually the, um, the business side. You can be a fly on the wall with some of the biggest, some of the biggest meetings that go on and, um, and before you actually are in that position yourself. So it's, it's quite an education. Yeah, I often have the conversation with filmmakers uh, about, you know, the kind of the, the purpose of uh, going to film school versus kind of going out and getting a real world education. And it sounds <laughs> like you've sort of, you know, done both. It's almost like, I guess, like you say, like this is that it's almost like uni's an apprenticeship and then going to do something like that's like a master's. Yeah, totally. You know, because the thing is, too, I mean, I, I did some um, did a lot of guitar teaching back in the day and, and some college um, tutoring. And, and the thing is, like, you know, as I said to my students once, it's like you're in this you're in a bit of a safety bubble when you're at college or university because you've got teachers that will chase you up. Like, what have you done? Why haven't you done it? And can I help? You know, and when you get out in the real world, it's not so much like that. It's quite the opposite. If you're not cutting it, you just don't get called anymore. So you really got to have it together. You you got to you know, it's hard enough in this business if you do have it all together and and everything's firing in the way it should. Let alone if you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the thing. And then beyond that, you've got to have a point of difference because, especially now, I mean, ten years ago, the market in terms of the composer world was nowhere near as flooded as as it is now. And ten years before that, I mean, it's it's all. It's, it's been quite a shift in the tide and um, and I think there's very um, real reasons for that. So you've really got to hone your craft to a point of difference and something that you have the versatility to offer to people, but you've also got like a, a character about you, you know. You're kind of like an artist, viewed as, as an artist nowadays. So I guess on the subject of honing your craft to a point of difference, you, when you did finish uni, engineered a guitar that could reach seven different octaves and kind of mimic what a piano could do in terms of versatility. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it was a design that um, I first had the idea in, in my, you know, bachelor degree and I thought, oh, it was just kind of a bit of a theory, but I had nowhere near the facility to actually pull something like that off. And even when I did, I um, worked very closely with Gerard Gillet, who... Um, was great, brutal, honest guy. I mean, anyone who you want to give money and they're like, look, we should really figure this out before you give any money. I mean, you've got, you've got trust there already. And yeah. when I went up to him with this idea, he's like, nope, no, nope, it's not going to work. <laughs> <I'm> like, <"Okay." laughs> so, um, 
so I kept on running ideas by him and, and to the point where, and just in my naivety, what about this? What about that? And then he's like, well, actually, you know, and then I, I kind of spark a little bit of interest out of him. And then he got excited about it. But then he, he also said, look, I, I'm into this. I'll do this. But if it doesn't fly, it's not my fault. Okay. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> but then it all came together. And, um, you know, cause I listened to so much orchestral music in particular in, in my undergraduate and it was just, you know, it was kind of like feeding this massive hunger I had. and But all of my favorite composers like Wagner and Debussy, I mean, they never really touched a guitar or, you know, Beethoven or anyone. I mean, it, it just didn't have that orchestral sound. So that's, you know, and part of it's the limited range and, and um, the tone that wouldn't carry. So, you know, I designed that thing basically for this and it's, it's very, and I proved, you know, kind of proved the point with, you know, transcribing pieces like Moonlight Sonata or, or I'm um, Claire de Lune. But then, you know, I'd spent all I'd spent five years practicing repertoire and I just wanted to, you know, take this into my own world. And it's been an incredible textual instrument. It's also been like a point of difference where people are like, Whoa, what's that all about? you know? Mm. So I was gonna say, was that was it kind of a conscious point of difference or was it just like you you just kind of in a tactile or kind of visceral way just wanted that sort of instrument? Well, I'm extremely critical when it comes to innovation in music. Like, are you doing that or are you not, you know? And I'm critical of no, I'm the most critical of myself. So, you know, I'm a great believer of like people that have, you know, that kind of, um, what would you say? There are. It's not innovation for innovation's sake. Is that what you're kind of. Yeah. I mean, like on, on the other side, like there's, say like fantastic blues guitarists or jazz musicians that are, that are keeping the history and the freshness of that alive. And that's one thing, even if it's not an innovative approach, it's like a, um, uh, a curator type thing. I think they say, you know, but if, if you're outside of that and you're just resting on the, on the shoulders of other people, I, I think, well, what are you offering? What, what's your, what's your slant on this? You know? And even, you know, there's like a, for a while, there's been a real throwback to the 80s and some people just totally just fall on that. And then other people have an interesting edge to it. They put their own thing on it. So, you know, for me, it's always been about that. And the guitar is just one aspect. But, you know, even as a kid learning guitar solos, I very quickly wanted to depart from them and, and try and figure out, you know, like what were the component parts? What there's always that um, that degree of like, inspiration out of nowhere that you can never quite capture but that is where your personality lies you know your musical personality and i think it's something you should nurture and you know i'll be doing that to the end of my days (laughs) (laughs) um i think that's you know i think that's kind of a great ethos not just for music but for creativity in general absolutely yeah you know you mentioned a a couple of uh great composers did you grow up with classical music in the house yeah i grew up with a bit of everything i mean i I often laugh because I my fir- the first album I ever remember was my mum bought Thriller. So that was my kind of musical <laughs> yeah. start, which was incredible. But at the same time, I was listening to the Never Ending Story soundtrack and, and Star Wars, and, and I just thought every kid listened to soundtracks. <laughs> um, not so much. But, you know, I, I had a lot of classical music around. I mean, it, it might sound dumb, but I, I really respect the old Warner Brothers cartoons, um, you know, Bugs Bunny, et cetera, because it's filled with classical music, Mozart, Wagner, et cetera. And kids are getting exposed to it. and They're not even realizing it, you know. 
So um, not that that was my only conduit to classical music, but um, there was there was that there was jazz around, you know, obviously rock and pop, and I just I just had such a love of everything. But I guess initially, you know, my my initial stream was pop pop um, kind of film scores and rock, you know, somewhere in that domain. Yeah, you grew up in Sydney. Yeah. I did. Do you remember like the first time that you picked up an instrument, or the first time that you kind of played or performed music? There's a couple of funny things about that. I, I was given like one of those toy guitars when I was three where you press yeah. the button and it does it all for you. And I was I was so shy about it. Like, thank you, thank you. And then I went in the garage, locked myself in there and played it. I wouldn't even play it in front of my mum and my grandparents. Ironically, I, I, my studio is a converted garage, so the whole, <laughs> the, whole the, the arc is there um, coming full circle. But uh, the first time, I mean, my mum bought me a guitar when I was, I was 11. And it was, uh, I still got that actually. And I sometimes record, it was like a three-quarter size Toledo acoustic. And it was an incredible year for guitar, actually. It was 91. And um, like these these albums that were coming out, like Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers, Usual Illusion 1 and 2 by Guns N' Roses, uh, Pearl Jam 10, uh, Nevermind by Nirvana, Metallica Black. I mean, it it was a crazy year for, for yeah, that's a, albums. That's a, that's also, a rock and roll year. Yeah, and changing the guard, like the 80s was kind of, um, you know, uh, starting to dissipate and the 90s was really kicking in, especially with the grunge. And um, and then the dance era, which then I applied all the guitar stuff to, I just, you know, filter sweeps on, on wire pedals. But the first, <laughs> time I ever, the first time I ever played anything uh, in front of anyone, it was, um, it was actually Stairway to Heaven because it's, uh, <laughs> there's a surprise. But I, uh, I had a next door neighbor um, and I was listening to, one Sunday afternoon when I was 12, I'd listened to, I'd heard Twist and Shout on the radio. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'd really love a copy of that. And I went next door and I said, you've got some Beatles, haven't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, Twist and Shout, blah, blah, yeah. And he said, do you want me to put some other stuff on there as well? And I'm like, sure. And uh, he said, you know, The Doors? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, you know, Led Zeppelin? And I'm like, oh, I've heard of him. <laughs> I realized it was a band. He said, oh, look, when you start playing Led Zeppelin, I'll validate your guitar playing. So the next morning I'm putting this tape on and I hear Black Dog. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. And then I hear Stairway and I'm just transfixed. And it was like I eight minutes song and I had to be I had to be on the way to school in like four or five. And I just I didn't hear the rest of the song that day, like that morning. And I just I'm like, what's going to happen next? You know, and hmm. I'm riding my bike to school and I'm making off the rest. Maybe it'll do this. Maybe it'll do that. So that started like a, a six month, you know, quest to learn that song and go from playing like little nursery rhyme melodies and the riff to beat it on the, to actually um to actually trying to be a real guitarist and it was like as i was playing this little chinks of light of like that sounds like the recording for a moment so then you know <laughs> trial by fire the first time i ever play in front of anyone it's like stairway to heaven guitar solo and all um for the little music academy i was learning at in the um they hired out a preschool hall and i played it and it went really well and it was just electrifying and um and for better or worse, till death do we part, I was in. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's quite a yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> I, that yeah, that kind of, uh, I guess, exploration or journey of kind of discovery as a musician or as a filmmaker or actor or painter, you know, it's it's quite, uh, it's, it's like that moment of, you know, to kind of sound or to use a trope, there's kind of that transcending moment where you feel like something coming alive you know yeah exactly you know and it's an evolution too because i think that you know i'm someone who kind of really wants to evolve and you know i got as i said before like i really quickly wanted to 
be able to improvise my own guitar solos. And then that led to like wanting to songwrite and a fascination with lyrics, which then led to composing and all these things. It's not like, you know, and then that finished and then that finished. It, it's just, it spread out, you know, and even Stairway, it's like, I saw the word arpeggio and I'm like, what's that? And then, you know, I thought, well, I should study music theory or the cla- there's a classical side of that. There's a, um, like guitar wise, there's also a, um, in that song. And there's also like a folky jazz harmony, you know, thing that's that's happening as well. And those things really sprouted me off to, you know, really go down those paths more wholeheartedly. And it's, you know, it's it's just, it. I don't know, it's like a kid in a candy shop, really. Keep on <laughs> keep on discovering other stuff. And there's a sugar high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then the inevitable creative crash. I was just going to say creative and, you know, business and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean that's a very hard combination. So. Oh yeah, being uh, being a creative entrepreneur or an artistic entrepreneur, um, which I guess is the kind of twenty first century crisis in a way. Yeah, if that's, if that's the worst crisis, then we're okay. <laughs> that's true. Um, it, it is a weird existence. I heard a musician say once that every day you have to um, basically validate your own existence as a musician, and it's true. And the more um, the more kind of, I guess, up the ladder you want to go and the more esoteric or, you know, out there you want to go, it's it's the harder to make a living out of it. And I, I think it's great, once again, when you're at university and you're in the, um, you're in the bubble of, of not having to make money from it, you just explore. It's really exciting. And even like, you know, my one of my favourite bands, or probably my favourite band I've ever been in was a band called Arkenstone when I was 18 and, and these poor guys, these other three guys, like I'd go and learn all this stuff at uni and then I'm like cramming all this stuff in the phone booth, like the four of us can pull off this thing, you know. <laughs> and it was like, a lot of it was, you know, uh, it's like a felonious monk thing. It's like when it worked, it really worked. And when it didn't, it crashed and burned, you know. But I think that once you get out into the real world, the, the trick is how do you do what's creative, creatively fulfilling but still make some coin on it and now i think it's harder than ever before and it's also ironically more important than ever before that you do have that point of difference um to stand out because like i said before it's just flooded music's flooded and uh you know music composition's flooded and and it's different like with what i grew up with and the and the romanticism of what i was watching and listening to it doesn't really exist anymore i mean for instance like i you know growing up in the early nineties and you know, this kind of punk thing that turned into grunge and, and then, you know, I, before anyone, like anyone else kind of really got on the bandwagon, I, I discovered Led Zeppelin and, and I was listening to them and Pink Floyd and these bands that would go on stage with this reckless, reckless abandon and their albums were just, you know, an, ev- an evolution of, of what they were all about. And, and, you know, it's kind of like photographs over the years. Whereas very quickly, um, late 90s, early 2000s, it's like your first album's your best of and then the second album's Kiss of Death. So you don't actually see how a band evolves to these great moments, you know. Uh, Zeppelin were four albums in when Stairway was there and they had a lot of great stuff before. And I I think one of the most interesting um, kind of anecdotes on that is with Pink Floyd, there's an album of theirs called Metal, which I love. And Metal as in meddling, you know, and they... It's an album where it's really a turning point for them. Um, there's a song called Echoes, which takes up a whole side, and you can hear the, the sound shift. And basically the, the record company said, look, 
you guys need to do your own thing, kind of re- rediscover some territory, discover new territory, and you know, here's your budget, blah blah. So the album did all right, but the next album was Dark Side of the Moon. So it's like metal is such an important album because it gave them the launch pad to be able to do this this album that was you know dark side that just is still one of the highest selling albums of all time but the record company kind of got back um they backed them on that experimental album that doesn't really happen now you know and musicians like you've got to get it from you've got to get your money from other sources because you know the recording industry isn't really the financial thing it used to be so when you've got to get it from insurance agencies or you know, it, it, advertising or whatever, then you kind of become a product that you've got to be very careful not to go outside of. So the more money you want to make, the more confined you get, which is very different to what it used to be. So um, it changes the culture. It becomes like more than just the music. It's like the artistic shift. I think with uh, with the way that, you know, certainly in speaking to other musicians, streaming services like... Spotify and Apple Music have kind of nullified the idea of the album um, as as it kind of existed 20 plus years ago. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I guess it was kind of happening before with iTunes and, and things like that where you can just buy songs. Um, but, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's kind of now more prevalent than ever. Well, you know what's funny, though, is the resurgence in vinyl. And the demographic for that is like late teens and early 20s. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, my age group or generation, whatever you want to call it, like we're probably the last ones that remember vinyl in the house, you know, and had an obsession with it as well at the time. But, you know, it was like, oh, then, you know, there were tapes and CDs and all that kind of stuff. So what's interesting is that there's these kids that like have never really had that, but they crave it and they buy it and it's, it's a tangible thing, which I think is really fascinating because don't get me wrong. I love the convenience of downloading a song on iTunes or streaming or whatever. But um, I remember if I was obsessed with a song as a kid, then I'd have to save up my money. I then hope the record store had it or order it in or tell them to put it on hold. I'd go there so excited and, and buy it. And then I'd listen to it. And, and I may have only bought it for one or two songs or because, or it was the, a band that, you know, I, I loved it. Um, but you've, you're invested in the album. You're like, I paid for this. I saved up for it. I'm going to listen to the rest of this. <laughs> and then your, your mind gets open, you know, from that stuff. Yeah. But it was also like that. It's not like that now. It's very quickly self-gratifying and, and you just you just get what you want. And you're done. You can scan through tracks, etc. cetera. And um, so I, I, I think it's a really interesting statement and it gives me a lot of hope that, you know, this resurgence in vinyl, like people interested in the artwork, they want to listen to the whole thing. It's an experience, you know, that they swap it, they listen to it with friends. I mean, this is this this is like a throwback to what it used to be. So there's a bit of hope there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of take the experience out of the music by not having the album anymore. And I guess the one of the kind of benefits of the streaming stuff is the algorithms that put in place, which means that you can discover new music or new artists. But at the same time, it's kind of like cheap thrills in a way. I guess like it's it's like you say, it's just short bursts of um, yeah. of of what you already know, as opposed to kind of expanding your oh totally. Mind. 
it's highly prescribed and manicured and and I think what I actually miss is throwing a radio station on and hearing new stuff you know that is kind of like isn't this interesting or isn't this cool or this song or whatever it's not it's the internet is is got everything you'd ever want but it's it's a lot of white noise and I don't think they've quite got to the point where they can concentrate that to um like a internet radio kind of thing because it satellite radio or or whatever itunes offer as playlists and stuff i don't like i don't want to go there and go i want to listen to the pink floyd station or the pearl jam station or the you know the Beatles station because it's i'm already making a decision about it that i'd rather just hear some stuff that's new and interesting you know that would what triple j used to be like in australia when um when i was growing up i mean it was all about that and they actually broke the band garbage like that happened from Triple J and before they were getting played on commercial radio, it's like, oh, this band's so cool. So I I think that's really important for someone somehow to get right and I think the playlists are starting to kind of reveal that. Um, people become DJs, of, you know, uh, like mixtapes basically and I, it's that, it's, that's problem. maybe that's a bit of the, the future, you mm. know. Because then you're investing in someone's taste as opposed to like they're controlling the situation as opposed to you saying, oh, I want to listen to whatever, Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense. Going to your your musical comfort food. Yeah. You can't exactly go, oh, I want to hear this band I've never heard before that I'm not too sure exactly what I want them to do or, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of the new music I I get exposed to is through music supervisors because they, you know, that they were uh, used to be like a part of the filmmaking crew. And then as the recording industry more and more South, I mean, getting syncs was everything. And um, so now they get flooded with music. And usually when I'm working on a project, you know, I'll be working closely with the music supervisor and I'll, I'll hear all this music they've been sent. I'm like, oh, this is super cool. You know? Um, so that's my kind of radio station. <laughs> yeah. Well, going back yeah. to you, I guess, uh, skipping back just a little bit before you were a composer you were a, a sessional musician uh with people like josh pike and and sophie b hawkins what was the kind of thinking i guess you kind of touched on it before but when you started composing work i guess around 2006 um and started working with people like david hirschfelder um what what was what was the kind of thinking there well, you know, it was interesting because, um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of music, as I said, and I played a lot of music. I played in a jazz big band at high school. It was the first time I got to get overseas, et cetera. And Kiriwee High School, I should say, uh, you know, <laughs> I was, it, it's very, very fun place in my heart. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I got to the, doing the session stuff, I mean, it was, I was always playing in bands. I was doing a lot of teaching and teaching started to absorb too much. So I started to kind of, and I realized because, you know, at 23, I was making good money from teaching, but I was miserable. So I started to kind of move more away from that and into getting in the session world while I was, you know, cultivating my own, continuing to convo- um, cultivate my own voice as a songwriter and singer-songwriter and composer, etc. So what I realized quickly into that is that, you know, some people get what they want and they're like, oh, it's amazing. Um, some people don't get what they want. They always wonder like, oh, I wonder if. And that kind of experience, you know, 
me, Josh, and the band, we'd like we would hang around some of the biggest artists in the world. And I was just looking at the situation. That's what I really realized what I fell in love with didn't really exist anymore. Not at the level that it used to. And so uh, I started to look at film more because it really seemed to be the last bastion of somewhere you could actually go on these creative tangents, um, like crazy creative tangents. And, and, you know, uh, a lot of that is due to Hans and how he approaches things. And that's why I was, you know, attracted to that place as well. But yeah, just you know, I did enjoy the session um, musician thing for a while. And and you know, don't get me wrong, like we played all over Australia and um, all the TV station, uh, TV stations, and the TV uh, radio stations. And and then you know, we went to England three times, and we played the BBC. We played Glastonbury. I mean, we we had a good run of it. And um, but I, you know, I probably spent the last year like fighting myself, like I. You know, almost hated myself because look, I, I um, look what I get to do, and I'm really unhappy. You know, so that's when I decided to make a shift and just like, you know what, I'm going to the states for three months, and what will be what will be, and if I come back and I become a carpenter and the music becomes something special it used to be when I was 12 years old, then so be it. You know, but um, then the stuff started to the Kindle here and even over the last 10 years it's it's interesting because ju- just as um just as something seems to to totally go to you know crap something else rears its head and you're like oh okay and and I often say like you know at my lowest points over here it's not I, I it's not like when I was in bands been more intense over here but the irony is when I was in bands and you know it was just feeling like we're going nowhere I'm like what am I doing? And like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know. Mm. And also, when you're in a band, you're basically relying on two, three, four other people to share the same level of ambition and not implode. And it's almost like you've got to make it before you implode, because most bands do. The most successful do. I think you two is the only band that's been super successful. The same four guys, and they they don't hate each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess. Um, that's all these things like they just kind of they funnel down to what what is your personality and i really think what i do now is me i think it's you know it's me as an as an artist in what i do and um and i I thoroughly uh, enjoy it for the most part (laughs) yeah do you find a difference between because i know that you've played on uh, on some you know big film scores aside from composing you know things like Pirates of the Caribbean and, and Fifty Shades and, and Rango, is it is there a difference between being a sessional musician, say for Josh Pike, and playing in the score for Pirates of the Caribbean? Well, first and foremost, the commute's better, <laughs> you know, going all around the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you basically you're a studio music- musicians, uh, you're a studio musician for. Um, these things and what i found uh that was good is um as a musician it's kind of good currency to get into you know be taken seriously as a composer and it's also like composing in terms of income is just like a you know how long is a piece of string type thing whereas you you have to kind of get paid well um (laughs) well that's the idea as a musician especially if it's union so that can help offset some of the composing decisions you make and you can get more interested in in more interesting things. But I think, um, I mean, even, even with Hans, uh, when I played on Rango, it kind of, you know, I wasn't just the Aussie assistant of Ramin anymore. So we, you know, it, it kind of had a bit of a domino effect and, 
and then came Pirates and Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots was a big one, and it was a, it's a very Hollywood story in, in a positive sense because I studied studied all types of guitar, but my first degree was primarily classical guitar. And you know, it was it was for the love of it. It was for the technique. It was for the the um, liberation of it as as a guitarist and be able to pull off anything that I, I wanted to do. But I wasn't going to pursue a concert career or anything like that. But here, this thing comes along that with Rango, they needed a classical guitarist. They needed a classical guitarist to play tremolo. <laughs> all of Hans's, I needed all of Hans's famous friends to not be available. You know? <laughs> and um, and then enough people to say, to him, why don't you try Bryce? Why don't you try Bryce to the point where he tried Bryce? <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and it really worked. So, you know, then the other composers kind of see that. And, um, and that Puss in Boots, like that is something, well, all of that, but especially Puss in Boots, it's something that if I spent my whole career as a classical guitarist, I don't think I would have ever gotten to do something like that, you know? So, um, and that's just, the, that's on the side of what I'm really doing. That's, that's what's remarkable about this place and actually being here. I think you know there's it's the old cliche of of uh finding yourself in a lucky situation but it's really that intersection of where you're prepared for an opportunity. Yeah, well that's right. Be- um a uh producer friend of mine who's uh been a mentor for like 15 years and I'm now working with uh, um I mean he's he's legit. He's like Oscar legit. <laughs> and he said to me, he's always had a bit uh, great bits of advice like and I'd always get excited about the first half and have the second half in my head. So like, you know, when I first came over here, he's like, you know, you spend that amount of time there and doors will open, but you've got to be ready to walk through. And I'm like, doors will open, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, but it's true. Like if there's an opportunity there and it's usually, you know, it's not like, okay, you've proven yourself here, blah, blah. It's usually a broken rung in a ladder and you're like, okay, what do you need? And that's usually the way to, you know, get further up. And every time I've had a bit of a leap up, it's because of that. And, you know, you're there, they look at you and it's like, how would you go with this? And then you've got to make, you know, not good on it, but really good. And, you know, and over here, I mean, not to kind of gild a lily with Hollywood, it's, it's, it's extremes. It's, um, it's a brutal town, but it's also a town that you can go out and pound the pavement and it's amazing what comes up. But, it, you know, it's very, it can be very much like a bubble. You know, every billboard's TV or movie or video game or whatever, um, you kind of, feel like you're constantly at work to a certain extent now because i work out of my home and i'm with my family which i love i'm a you know it's gone from traveling the world to you know i've, I've gone two or three weeks and not left the house <laughs> and, and to a certain extent i'm fine with that i've become a bit of a hermit but you know now and then i like to you know de-gollum myself and get out there and, you know or there's mute meetings etc but the that you go to but a lot of the time in today's modern world you know there's a lot of skype going on and facetime and and dropbox and um you know, and important emails. So the art of the meeting has now become the art of the email, if that makes sense. But is there anything more satisfying than a really well-crafted email? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Before or after send, (laughs) you know, yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like if you get that right, then you can get cues approved um, easier, but it's it's hard. You haven't, you know, not to have, I work with people I've never met. You know, I did a National Lampoon documentary, um, official one for um, Sundance, and, you know, I was up there with my wife and I was talking to the filmmakers and my wife said, how much time have you spent with them? And I said, about as much time as you have. I've just met them, <laughs> you know, because they were from New York and, and I was working in L.A. and we are doing it via Skype. And, but it's uh, and we only had three weeks to do it, which was, you know, 50 or 60 minutes worth of music, which was quite the onslaught. 
but and it was low budget, so I had to do everything. But That's crazy. Uh, I guess you know some of the most satisfying things. Just you know, talking about the email, like some of the things that are just arrive easily. You're like, wow, you know, and you feel like you know, it's truly a blessing. You're like, I can't be responsible for this, surely. And um, then you know, the things that are the most trying, the most challenging. Some of those, a lot of those, on the other side of it, I'm like, you know, that that can be my favorite moments of something I've done, and everything in between is is um, it's the extremes that kind of give you the most satisfaction. Yeah, so I guess, you know, what was the what was it like to, you know, be creating so much music in such a short period of time? And I, and I guess, because that was only, what, in the last sort of uh, couple of years, so was, I guess there's the culmination of, you know, eight years of working um, with remote control and, and some of these sort of titans of, of the industry. Did you feel kind of well-equipped to be able to do this sort of job at that time? I did. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm glad I didn't go into remote like at, you know, 19 or 20. I think that, you know, even though I had some definite ideas back then, but I, I really felt like going into my mid twenties, it was, it was mid to late twenties. It was just, it was a different kind of thing because it, it just opened the floodgates for me to kind of get all these ideas out and, and try them and, um, and, and bring them to life. So, which was wonderful, and it's funny how things kind of, like a, I guess a, a financial weakness initially kind of became like something that is a bit of a, you know, point of difference for me. So like when I started doing this stuff and everything was on a laptop, you know, trying to record, etc., I didn't have synthesizers or the money for synthesizers, so I just had my guitars around. So I just extrapolated every single last tone out of them that I could, just to basically lie to your ears of what you think you're hearing. Um, supporting the orchestra, trying to make them sound like synths, etc., and then that's kind of what I guess people that I work with get excited about. Even though I've got synths now and all this other stuff, it's um, <laughs> it's funny how that that takes a complete turn. I think that's the same situation for a lot of people in their own context. But even like a couple of years ago, I bought a pedal steel guitar, and I you know, learned, out of respect, learning the Hank Williams stuff, etc. But then. It was funny as a guitarist, I was super frustrated because I just wanted to play it. But as a composer, I was really excited because I didn't have any muscle memory and I would just discover things. And then, you know, there's, in recent times, people are like, what's that synth? It sounds, you know, it sounds pretty cool. And I'm like, it's a, it's a pedal steel guitar. So, um, yeah, it's, it's funny how these things kind of turn around. And then leaving remote, it's very much about, for me, um, you know, I, I leaving remote is more of a, the, the pendulum swings are bigger, but I just, I've always wanted to getting back to my own voice thing. I just always wanted to kind of build it from, for my career and, and cultivating that. And, you know, so I can have my own name and place. So that's kind of, that was a big decision for going it alone. But yeah, I think that doing that, then you, uh, your sensibilities get to broaden and, and head down different paths do you feel like, you know, chipping away and just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, having made the decision to move to Los Angeles has kind of served you in, in opening the doors that you otherwise wouldn't be able to open to or walking through those doors that are open for you and, uh, and, and finding yourself in a, you know, a place where you're really satisfied sort of 10 years into the LA leg of your career? I think in terms of what, I've not come. 
of not coming here. I think um, 100% in, in coming here. But it's not without its, you know, as I said before, like, I think, and this is an American story more than anything. I mean, it's, you know, much broader. But if, you know, if you come from a country that's not America and you're doing, you know, you've got ambitious stuff going on, it doesn't work out. You've still got, you know, pretty good safety nets. But you can only go so far with your ambitious side unless you, you know, for the most part, if you, if you come here, it's a different culture. It's a very positive and you can do anything culture. But you, you, can go as, you can go as far as you can take it, but you can also fall to absolutely, you know, homelessness on the street very quickly. You know, it's, yeah. it is that kind of place. So it's, it's remarkable to me that, that anyone can make money from music nowadays. And the fact that I can, I feel like I'm in the top 10% of the, the planet, you know. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember like a, a World Vision uh, guy coming out our high school in the, you know back in the day and, and he just started with you know living in australia you, you're in the top 10 percent of the wealthiest people in the world <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that's a real opener like even if you've you know absolutely absolutely rock bottom in australia you're still better off than being that in you know in india or or, or another country that it's it's a lot more populated and a lot harsher you know at, at that same level I think you got to count your blessings if you can have the perspective. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I've had my hard times over here, very hard times, but well, as you say, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Is that how you kind of pull yourself through when you are going through a rough patch? Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and it's not all me. It's, a, you know, I've got a great wife that um, is very good with, with supporting her um, crazy husband. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just, I mean, for me, uh, family is just, is so important and you know my little daughter and and she can totally dissolve any you know get me out of my head pretty quickly so that that's a, a really i mean everyone's got their own thing but that's that's really um you know especially working from home because a lot of this job is hurry up and wait you know <laughs> i've traveled in like 50 minutes to do a five minute fix and then 50 minutes back thanks to la traffic but now it's, I've literally been playing with my daughter in the pool. I get a fixed note and I run in here at a beach towel and go, da, 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 send and then run back in the pool. That's incredible. <laughs> so um, it's a much better existence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. How do you define the success of your work and, and has that evolved over time? I mean, I'm super ambitious. So I want to, you know, uh, till my dying day, take it as far as I can. But I think that, you know, obviously that's awards etc and everything I, th I think if you try and make a beeline for an award it, it, it's um horse before the cart type stuff i think that you've just got to do the best work you can do and if the stars align you're on the right film or you know on the right album those things can happen um clearly but i think that for me uh it's been extremely gratifying to hear my music on all these different things and i was watching the 2012 olympics and there's this girl doing a gym routine to Puss in Boots. And then I, I just caught myself. I'm like, that's my guitar going through that stadium. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and there's moments where you've got to sit back and go, this is quite incredible. Um, you know, especially with Rush and, and um, working on Medal of Honor as well. Top Gear use a lot of stuff from that. And I also work with a great company called Audio Network, which um, they kind of give me, you know, they're, they're the kind of guys that are like, what do you want to do? 
and um, give me a lot of creative license. And then we discuss it from there and kind of A&R it. And then that's very enriching and gratifying to be able to have that. You know, there's a funny story with, with that. The, um, the first album I did with them a few years back, there was a piece of music from a, a film that had kind of gone nowhere and I had it left over. And it became, and I think it still is, the, the theme song for Long Lost Family in Australia. So here's this film that went nowhere, This you know, a few pieces of music that I still kind of had on a hard drive. And, you know... Aussie guy in America works with a British company and, and gets a pretty good gig on an Australian TV show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from a film that went bust. It's, <laughs> you know, and that's a better situation because if you, if it went with the film, it just would have died. Mm. But um, this got a, a cool life of its own. So, um, but I'm, you know, you ask anyone from any aspect of my life, I've been stupidly ambitious and, but it changes. At 19, you're ambitious for the sake of it. Like, I want to take on the world type thing. But, you know, 10 years later, when I had a wife and, you know, real um, real risks and sacrifices going on and ahead of me, it's different. The appeal is different. It's like I really need to make this work. And it's almost like you become more ambitious because there's more at stake. So, yeah, you know, then throw a kid into that. <laughs> Exponential. <laughs> you know? Yep. Is there a difference, I guess, just quickly uh, in, in the approach between, say, doing something like Medal of Honor, uh, which is a video game, and doing something like Prison Break or, or 12 Monkeys or one of these sort of series or films? Prison Break, I'd only just come on to um, work with Ramin, so I was just kind of assistant stuff as he was finishing off that series. But Medal of Honor was interesting because oh, video games are interesting because it's like it's it, you give them all this music and it's like, they need an intro and an outro and this loopable thing in the middle so the player can go on for ages. And at the time, they just they just got the technology that if you if you finished a level, the music would round off and you would go to the next one as opposed to like chop. So you are kind of writing a lot of music, obviously not to picture. You get given like, you know, um, you know game grabs, whatever they call it. Um, yeah, I can't even remember the name, but, you know, basically they, they play the game and they video it and send it to you. So you get a bit of a vibe, but then you kind of go on just your own tangent and, and work it from there. You know, uh, working on a TV show, uh, 12 Monkeys or, you know, um, anything like that. It's, it, you know, I mean, a lot of today in TV, they really want a cinematic score. So, and that is to picture. And it's, you know, I think it's finding the right tone for the show, um, whatever you're working on. That's what's exciting about when you do a pilot or, you know, you start off a series because you, you are, you know, creating this sound that starts to, you see this image that starts to come through that becomes that thing for that show. And I think that's very satisfying once, once you've got that musical personality for that particular show or film. Yeah. And it starts to take its own sort of life and its own tangent and course. Because yeah, it's a collaborative effort and you've got a, a director there and it's great because it's like one of those things like with, given the limitation comes great creativity because you're not just like, oh, anything's an option. And even with Rush, Hans said to me, like, go and do something, but only only with guitars. So, you know, I went all orchestral with 37 guitars. And, <laughs> and, and then and then we kind of, you know, that, that um, you know, combined with Hans's theme and, and what I had um, thematic-wise and sonically and all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that kind of became the sound of Rush and, and it, uh, 
it really, you know, it was it, that was a wonderful experience in itself. But it's, you know, you kind of he wanted the guitars to kind of be the creative juice that got injected to the orchestra, orchestral stuff and the electronica. But it's curveballs like that that he'll throw at you, and you're like, oh, okay, I haven't thought of like doing a guitar symphonic thing since I was 15. You know? <laughs> and when he did it, then it was like, you know, well, actually, it's this could be really interesting now, you know, because you've just got you're not just listening to Metallica anymore. <laughs> yeah. What was it like working with Ron Howard? That must have been a that must have been a trip. You know, that was remarkable. I mean, that guy has been famous all his life, and he's, he's such a sweet human being. And I. I mean, I just got a phone call from um, Hans' assistant to come in his room and because uh, he wanted me to watch a movie. And I walk in and there's Ron Howard. I'm like, well, huh. you know. And um, so I sit up the back and watch this movie. And Ron comes up at the end and he shakes my hand. He says, oh, sorry, I didn't get your name. And I'm like the least person in the room. You know, I hadn't done anything musical on it yet. And I, and I kind of smirked and went, Bryce, you know, because he's got a daughter named Bryce. And he's like, oh, yeah. you know, kind of not going to forget my name. Um <laughs> But it was wonderful. Like this piece of music that um, that I wrote, Hans just played for him and said, "This is something Bryce did," and he got really attached to it. And it kept on, um, he kept on referencing it throughout the process. And it was, it was extraordinary, you know, to be able to do that. And I, I just, it was very humbling, you know. I mean, I, I was able to like Hans and and Ron are like, you know, they've been working together and close friends for for decades. And um, you know, be, to be able to come into that situation is quite remarkable you know as an experience and a, a personal and a professional experience so and the film was outstanding so i just you know it was it was special it was very special yeah what a great thing to have been a part of absolutely you know thank you so much bryce for uh for chatting with me and sharing uh sharing your journey um, I finish all of my podcasts with the same question, and Uh-oh. the question is, <laughs> what makes you silly? What makes you silly? Yeah. Um, probably the DNA of my grandfather. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was silly as a rabbit, and he's always like make, making me uh, laugh, and I, I just find that I'm, I'm the same with my wife and my daughter. And it's funny you say silly, because um, my daughter says, I've got a silly daddy. And I say, well, you got a silly daddy, don't you? You know, I just, I just do dumb stuff to make a laugh. Anything I can think of, you know. So, and she's got a great sense of humour too, and so does my wife. So, um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I just think my natural away. I mean, look, even like in my work, in in a comedic situation, I just did an animation where this um character is like his lines are pretty operatic because he's like this, everything's dramatic to him, and then I kind of wrote. I wrote music around his delivery, so it becomes like his own opera, and it was just making me laugh. You know, I'm even like doing like little quiet bits behind him, and it, you know, I, I couldn't actually get through some of the vocals. I just, I, well, I ended up getting through them, but I, I keep on cracking up like this is ridiculous. You know, so, um, yes, I'm silly professionally and personally. <laughs> yeah, and do you find that having that kind of, uh, I guess, irreverent edge? you know, not taking things too seriously uh, in a kind of person-to-person way has has served you well? Yeah, no, totally. I, it's funny because I have always hated the idea of, you know, selling myself or networking, like not networking in the, like networking in the sense of just being there for a reason. And that's why it's great to have an agent that covers a lot of that. Um, but, you know, it, the, the switch kind of went in my mind with, well, actually, I'm really interested in people. 
So whenever I go to any of these things, I just get in conversations with people. Of course, the musical stuff or the, whatever they do will come up. But, you know, for instance, like I, I was at a friend's birthday. We all went away a few months ago and he works in previs and he had one of his colleagues from London come out and we kind of really hit it off. And then I, I went over to London recently and was recording at Abbey Road and he came to that. And then he had a project that he's like, actually, do you want to come in and talk to everyone and see if you want to work on this this project? And I'm like, sure. So it's kind of, it's good because you just, you meet someone with no agenda and if it works out, then great. You know, I, it's kind of it's better than going in cold and everyone knows why they're there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, wow, you recorded at Abbey Road. Yeah, it's the second time I've done it. It's uh, wow. What was that like? Oh, it's, you know, the first time it was like you know, for the first I, I arrived, we got rid of all the technical stuff out of the way, and and we had about fifteen or twenty minutes before starting. And, the engineer said, anything else? And I said, yes, for the next 15 or 20 minutes, treat me like a 15-year-old kid and show me everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, my sister came the first time, which is wonderful. But then my mum came the second time, which uh, we uh, – this was only recently. This is in January. We went all around the UK. And I'd been there like this was my eighth time there. So I knew where to go and visit family. She'd never been there before. She hadn't met all this family. And then we ended up at Abbey Road. And it was very – poignant because uh, there were a couple of pieces that were related to my family one in particular is about my grandmother and mum was there for that in the room listening to it and then we we realized it was two years ago to the day of her death that we were recording it. oh wow so this is pretty incredible stuff because there's there's recording music and there's writing music and then there's a situation like that and that yeah. that's a personal thing as much as a pro- professional thing i mean you know the personal side it's like that's that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life and will always be magical so absolutely um so that's you know and when you're at abbey road and you got a mum who's into the beatles <laughs> you know it's also got that as well well if you go to abbey road for a third time i'm gonna come with you you're more than invited my friend <laughs> <laughs> hey before um, before i let you go do you have any memories of your grandfather being silly oh he had these dances he'd do you know he's this american war hero you know purple heart Silver Star, Bronze Star, and you know, he's saved guys in the South Pacific, and then he's just there doing the most stupid dance to get me laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he loved his family, and he just, you know, he, especially after all those experiences. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I actually heard a tape of him once saying that he, uh, he had a friend over here that was blind, so he'd send him these tapes, these audio tapes from the, you know, his letters, and he was talking about how, you know, um, my grandfather's trying to watch the, like, whatever fight it was, you know, boxing. And I just, you know, cracking up because I I thought he was asleep. That's what my grandmother told me. And then I saw, I saw him in there and I just launched at him. This poor guy, like, you know, in his late 60s. And, you know, <laughs> and um, thankfully he thought that was funny, this little three-year-old projectile, you know, <laughs> coming at him. But he, he was a wonderful human being. So, um, and we had a lot of fun. He would dress up. You know, he'd be on his hands and knees playing whatever I was into, Transformers, He-Man, Voltron. You know, he'd just get right into it, you know, buy hats on and all that kind of stuff. Encourage the silly. Oh, yeah, yeah. He helped program it all, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's, um, and it's kind of, it's nice because I I relived that with, um, on the other side, being with my daughter. So, yeah, it was lovely. Generations of silliness. Thank you so much, Bryce. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.